0: Hey there friends, I have something really exciting to share, and of course, I'm going to come to you with it first. As faithful listeners here to the Inventory Genius Podcast, I am thrilled to let you know that I am releasing my first full-length book, The Inventory Genius, How to Use Your Inventory to Create More Profit and Keep More Cash. Yes, my book, The Inventory Genius, it is ready to release, and I want to invite you to get your own copy. Now this book is of course going to be practical as it shows us and walks us through how to use our inventory to create more profit and keep more cash in our business, but it's also a little entertaining. So in this book, I weave together my journey, my story, and the story of many of my clients as we discovered through the Inventory Genius Method how to create more profit and keep more cash in our businesses, whether it is paying down debt or taking a paycheck for the first time. There is so much to be learned in The Inventory Genius. So I want you to head on over to my website, SierraStockland.com, and grab your copy of The Inventory Genius. You don't wanna miss this book. See you soon. Hey, friend, welcome to the Inventory Genius Podcast, where we work together here to make you an inventory genius. We talk about profit, we talk about cash flow, and we definitely talk about your paycheck. Because at the end of the day, it's all related to your inventory. Let's go. Hey, everyone, welcome to the Inventory Genius Podcast. I'm your host, Sierra, and I have a special guest here which I say every time I have a guest I have a special guest or a special treat but I feel like I actually really do today because I have my son here with me today. Harrison is joining me um, and I'm really excited about the conversation we're gonna have so hi Harrison.
1: Hi, how's it going?
0: Good. I feel like um if I would have done this when you were a little boy you would have <laughs> just thought it was the coolest thing ever <laughs> yeah. to, to be on a podcast. So I am going to do an interview today with Harrison or this week with Harrison and then next week I'll be following up with an interview with Isabella, my daughter, because I thought it would be really interesting for the listeners to hear, for all of you guys to hear um, the perspective of kids growing up in a small business family. And Harrison is out on his own now, has a lot of really exciting things going on, one of which we're going to talk about today um, with a newly uh, released book. So we're going to be talking about that. Isabella has her own life that she's building, but both of them grew up around small business. Um, In fact, I have a picture of both of them sitting on the floor of my store when Harrison was three and Bella was about one. I think they were eating pizza off the floor, which I'm still I'm still puzzled as to why I was letting them eat pizza off the floor. But, you know, small business life. So I thought it would be really interesting to have them both come on the show and just visit with you all and give you some behind the scenes on what it's like to grow up in an entrepreneur's home. So let's get started. Harrison, tell us what you've got going on, what you're doing, where you live, all of the good things. Give us some background.
1: All right. So um, first of all, uh, in these situations, I like to preface with my age because it gives people some perspective and like the velocity that things have been moving. Um, so I'm 19 years old. Um, I'll be 20 in June. June 11th is my birthday. So if you guys remember. <laughs> um, and Basically, my life, my adult life started with me packing up my car and moving to Washington, D.C. So I moved from, we're originally from Grand Forks, North Dakota, um, and that's about 1,200 miles from Washington, D.C. So drove across the country, moved there uh, to work as an intern with the Trade Association um, and some lobbyists uh, representing transportation. So. That was a fantastic experience. As a matter of fact, that's the only other podcast um, podcast I've ever been on is the uh, the TCA's podcast. So that was I
0: forgot. Yeah, I forgot yeah. they interviewed you on that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, they did. They did. It. They liked me enough to do an exit interview uh, live on the air. So that oh. was good. Um, but yeah. So this is number two. Uh, <laughs> um. Anyways, so I I worked in DC for about five months, and then after I was done there. I moved to Middle Tennessee because my family had moved there, um, and it seemed like a great place to go at the time. I had heard of some uh, good jobs up in Maine, which is you know a new place for me. I've never been north of New York City, Um, and then I also thought about moving down to Florida because I, at the time, I owned a sailboat and I love sailing, um, and I was just going to take that down to Florida and live on that. Two totally different lifestyles, uh, two totally two totally different places, and I ended up in neither of them. Um, I moved to Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, where my family was i lived with them for a few months seven eight months something like that that. and then and then uh and then moved out now i'm living in franklin still and they're living in murfreesboro um and which is a few miles to the east and it's yeah uh tennessee's been great um i've been here for over a year now really enjoying it um i took up a career in real estate here so i am a affiliate broker with simply home uh, right now, and uh, out of the Leaper's Fork office. A um, little shout out to those guys. And uh, so yeah, I sell real estate, and uh, I write books, and I publish books. Um, and, and that's that's what I do. That's what I love doing. Um, I, the only thing I like more than writing is sailing, and there's nowhere to sail around here. So I'm kind of forced to to only do the writing. But
0: yeah, well, maybe one day, the books will contribute to the ability to buy a house, on the ocean or at a yeah. massive lake and get yourself another sailboat so yeah. yeah Harrison's packed a lot in already in 19 years he's almost 20 years old and we're going to be talking about his book actually today because I want to share that with, with everyone uh, I know a lot of you all are readers but before we get to that let's dive into growing up in a small business home because I mean I think like as long as you can remember I've always I mean I've always had a business since you were yeah. Little before you were born, but so what would you think or feel or remember? I guess what what's your earliest memory of me working in business?
1: Probably back. Um, I don't even know what year this would be. Maybe like two thousand six, um, two thousand five, two thousand six. For reference, I was born in two thousand three, which is crazy to a lot of people. Um, but yeah, so 2000, 2005 or six. Um, going to a weird building I'd never been to before in downtown Fargo that was empty. Uh, it was filled with a lot of fun boxes to play in. Um, they were probably stacked like six feet tall, but it seemed more like 15 or 20 at the time, you know, being so young. But uh, yeah, going to that building and and just kind of slowly realizing that this, you know, my mom rented this building and she was going to sell stuff out of it. And then we grew up going back and each time we'd go back, it'd be a little more developed, it'd be painted, it would be, you know, uh, new separation walls, changing rooms, stuff like that. And all of a sudden it was a boutique. Uh, there was customers in there and and uh, and that's kind of where that's kind of where my life experience, I think, took a took a turn from from most other people my age is that at that point I was probably six, five or six, um, maybe five. And uh, I was in the store in the storefront. Um, if I wasn't in the back watching um, watching the riflemen, I was in the storefront uh, with the customers, with mom. Um, with uh, some of her employees. And I was around customers and adults and people I had to be polite to um, all day. And so that was, I think that's kind of where the, the split happened from like, I don't know what you'd call like, I don't know if normal childhood is the right way to say it, but from from what of most children would experience um, uh, to, to what I started to experience, which was being raised in an environment um, being raised in an adult environment really and not in a bad way um at all whatsoever. It was just uh you know you're raised and you have to be polite and you have to be respectful and you're just you learn how to communicate those things and how to um read people and how to talk to people very, very early. And it's it was very important. I think it was really instrumental in where I am now and where I'm headed in the future.
0: Yeah, because I would bring you down so during the week you'd be with the nanny or at grandma's house and nannies that's a whole different story you and Bella were <laughs> you could be any of the nannies listening except for nanny denise who's yeah. probably you guys loved her but i mean you liked your nannies but you could be a bit of a handful um but you are either there or you're at grandma's house except for on week like saturdays a lot of times or fridays you would come to the store with me you know if mm-hmm. you didn't have school or like in the summer And then we had all the things set up in the back room. And one of my ladies, Mrs. Pole, would always bring you guys treats. And we had a little water cooler set up for you in the back. I know Bella, which I'll talk to her when I interview her. She liked to work in the store and like earn things. And um, you were more always like drawing things, writing stories, watching movies, you know, writing movies, whatever, taping. Yeah, all the creative stuff. So, yeah, very interesting. So. We started in 2006. You guys were around small business forever. Most of it was in the store. Some of it I brought home. And then when we went through our massive kind of overhaul of the business, when we lost everything, which would have been like 2017, 2018, we were in Grand Forks at the time. And then you were trying to think, well, 2017, how old would you have been? Five years ago, 14. Mm -hmm. So 13, 14. What was that like? as a kid, like seeing your parents go through and your mom, like go through so much stress and lose everything that I've been working for. I mean, lots of tears, all, all the things like, what was that like from a kid's perspective?
1: Um, it was interesting. It was an interesting change. Um, I, I think me and Bella will see this differently. I, I, I don't believe she remembers it in the way that I would remember. Like she probably remembers it happening, but she doesn't, remember understanding what was happening. You know, I was old enough to understand what was going on. Um, like I knew how money worked. I knew what, you know, different things meant. Um, I, you know, I knew that how much, well, I had an idea of how much work it took to run a business. Mom was traveling all the time and flying to different States and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden that all stopped. So stuff like that, um, I was kind of able to pick up on, um, and it, it definitely shifted the dynamic in the household. Um, it just, it was hard. Every You guys were going through hard times. Um, Dad still had a great job, um, still has a fantastic job. Uh, so that was very helpful. And we're all really thankful for that, I'm sure. Um, and we had people around us that were willing to help us in a, in a generous um, way, which was also fantastic. Um, but just immediately, it kind of hits you and everybody sort of realizes um, what's going on. And it's just, it kind of, it's almost like it gets quiet in a way. Yeah. And so it was interesting realizing that shift, because I remember realizing that shift and kind of, you guys would sort of be like, hey, this, you know, this could happen, we might have to move, we might have to, you know, live with someone else for a while, stuff like that. Um, and, and that was really foreign to me, because you guys had always done really well at like, you know, providing shelter and providing like, we had never had any issues with anything like that before. So it was, and we'd always lived in nice, like pretty nice houses and nice areas and stuff like that. So I was used to that lifestyle and having, I remember having that threatened a little bit and being like, ah, I don't really know if I want to share a room with Bella, you know? Yeah. So um, And uh, so a lot of that, I think, I mean, as a little kid, you look at a lot of things selfishly. I think I looked at some stuff um, in there selfishly. like, Oh, we don't get to go on vacation now. And my birthday might not be as big. You know, you think about some of that stuff, but a lot of it was really just, Kind of watching you guys, and and honestly, the, now that I think back on it, it's kind of looking and seeing how you're reacting and deciding um, that kind of being the basis of how I decided to react. And nobody was yelling, nobody was screaming, nobody was hitting each other, nobody was fighting. Like it was, it was sad, and mom was crying, and and dad would be kind of quiet. But um, at the end of the day, you guys worked together to kind of to push through that time. And, yeah. and because of that, I think that teaches you some value, it teaches you some valuable uh, adversity skills. Like it's not, it's not going to change anything. If you yell and scream at a person across the table when they're on the same side and you guys are arguing the same point, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I think that was really valuable.
0: Yeah. One thing that um, dad and I really tried To be intentional about is communicating with you and Bella, even if you didn't understand all of it, or she didn't understand all of it, communicating with you, like you were adults, like that you could handle the conversation and the stuff, like not trying to hide things, not trying to sugarcoat them, of course, protecting our kids. Like there were certain things, like we just didn't have to share details with you. But we, you know, I remember specifically going on a walk with you. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember going on a walk with you because you were pretty angry about some, like, just people are taking our stuff and, you know, however yeah. a kid processes that. And I was like, hey, Sierra, or hey, uh, Harrison, you know, um, bankruptcy is part of our story now, which means it's part of your story. And we don't need to shout that from the mountaintops and tell it to people if it doesn't make sense. But yeah. we also need to hide that. Like that's just part of our story and we can use that for good somehow. And because you're our child, that's part of it. So I don't know if you remember that walk. I, I, I don't remember, remember the
1: remember specific walk, but I remember talking to you about that. And I remember talking to dad about that downstairs when he was sorting through his things, deciding what to sell, what not to sell. I remember this, the saddest I probably got was when he had to sell his toolbox. Um, yeah, I haven't thought about that yeah. in a long time. That's kind of weird. It makes me uh I'm not very emotional, but that kind of <laughs> that kind of I forgot that, about his toolbox. That kind of yeah. gets to me actually now that yeah. I'm yeah. Oh um just because well, cause growing up, um, well, and I wasn't growing up then, but like until then that I mean he had that box before he married you, right?
0: I probably, yeah, because he know, Around the same time. Tools, he had it yeah. during
1: his plane business. I it's mean, all, yeah, he took it to Dubai. So all he stickers had for, all over it. Yeah. yeah, and so stickers all over it, perfectly organized. Can't put stuff in the wrong place, you know. Um, and so it was, and yeah. And then some guy came by and bought it for one hundred and fifty dollars, and that was that was there it goes. We move on. And it was always around, and it was always in the back. Like I'm sure you can find a hundred pictures of it in the background. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that one was. That's where I really remember being like, oh, this is actually. <laughs> you know, happening. Um, but I remember talking to dad about that and talking to you about that too. And you did, I I agree. You did treat us like adults and you told us, um, important things. And I think that is good too, because then it helps. I think a lot of people underestimate the capabilities of children. Um, there's some quote, and I'm going to totally butcher it about how basically a child, like an, an infant that's born has completely unlimited potential. There's, there's unlimited possibilities. And as you get older um, from the day you're born, those possibilities start to shift and change. And um, they narrow down. They'll always narrow down as the older and older you get, because you, you know, you grow up, you get certain grades in school, then you get married, then you have kids, right? So it, it shifts and changes. Um and I think people underestimate the capabilities children have and their ability to learn. Um, I learned a lot before I was 15 years old uh, about things that people go to school for and and it wasn't even direct learning like you didn't sit us down and you weren't like all right here's what a PNL is but you just you live around it and you talk about it at the house and so you just learn um, what that stuff is and I think you did the same thing in that situation where um, I was able to understand understand what was going on um, because I was a capable of understanding what was going on because you know I, even though I was well, like 13 or 14, I had a brain and I knew math and I knew that negative wasn't good. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then you kind of instill, well, here's how we're going to fix it. Like, I don't think you guys were ever just like, yeah, we're good. Like you would always be like, okay, we're working on this. We got to do that. Like, it wasn't like, okay, we're going to fix it. And then now it's fixed. There was lots of bullet points, um, in between. And, and that was, um, very helpful too. I remember, I think that probably instilled, like I paid a lot more attention to finance classes and people like Dave Ramsey and stuff like that after that, especially like when I started learning about it in high school, um, started taking more interest in that. And I think, so I think there's a little something there. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's, it, it was instrumental in my, in my upbringing. Like if I wrote a biography, I probably wouldn't put that situation in there just because, Um, I don't think it affected me in a major way, but it was, it was definitely a part of my life, a part of our story, like you said. And I think if you wrote a biography about our family, you would definitely put it in there. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And I think, you know, just for anyone listening, I know a lot of you listening are moms, you have young kids, you have teenagers, and you wonder, you know, I've talked to some of you and you've said like, I don't know, you know, I I'm in business all the time and I feel guilty when I'm at work. And I feel guilty when I'm home that I should be at work. And we try to strive for this work-life balance that people talk about, which I think is a myth. (laughs) I don't think there is work work-life balance. I think that you integrate well. So you Mm -hmm. learn to integrate well. You don't balance because it can't be in balance. Like if you look at a scale, whatever's going to have more priority that day is going to be, pushing the scale down, right? So you can't balance it equally, but you can integrate it well. And so that's what we tried to do with you and Bella and our family. Like this is part of who we are. We're small business owners. That means we get to celebrate the amazing things. So I'll talk to Bella about taking her to Washington, DC to testify with me. And I mean, amazing things. And then we also have to go through all the hard stuff together, but sharing that with your kids and giving them the benefit of the doubt that they are capable to understand and to take some of that on and, and talk through with them. Definitely shape. So that's interesting. So let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey now. So you, um, well, let's talk about some of the fun things you did before you wrote your book, just because you've always had entrepreneurial spirit. So would you say your first business was the bracelets you made or the frogs you sold?
1: Frogs. frogs okay. So great.
0: So let's talk about the frogs. You went to camp. And we gave each you and belt. So we didn't do allowances with the kids because we feel like you should value. It's just our personal opinion. You should earn your money. We'll provide whatever you need. And then if you want money, you need to work for it. That's Jim and I, that's our opinion. So when you went to camp, we kind of like, should we give them something to spend? Should we not? So we said, okay, we're going to give you each. Was it $20 maybe? Yeah. I feel like it was $20. $20. Okay. And we, we told them. Okay, this is yours to take to camp. You can do what you want with it. But if you come back with it, whatever you come back with, whatever you don't spend, you can keep to try to teach them like don't just blow it all because maybe I want to keep $10, whatever. So we sent you off with some money and you came back with a lot of money. (laughs) Like, where did that all come from? I came back with like tell us where you got all that money. Yeah. You you had some inventory that you found and sold.
1: So, yeah, um, so how did you do what it? What I did, well, so um, we are very good friends with this family who has a farm and so I spent a lot of time out there and I discovered really young, like probably before I was 5, that I really liked um I really like frogs. For some reason, frogs, toads, whatever, I just thought they were fun creatures and they're easy to catch, they can't bite you and you can, you know, store them in a terrarium for a few days before they die. So, <laughs> they're kind of fun weekend pets to have and um what I did was Kind of two different things. I would at camp, I found an abundance of frogs in a certain area, so I'd go uh, catch them. I think I paid like three dollars for like the biggest Gatorade they had, and then I would I drank that and it was fine. And then I went and uh, went and down to this like swamp area in the camp where I don't even know if we were supposed to go in there. Probably not, but I would have been. This would have been the summer before third grade, so I was young. I'm um, gonna go down there. And I would catch frogs and I would squeeze them through the, through the opening in the Gatorade bottle. And I'd pack like probably 20 or 30 in there at a time. And then what I'd do is I'd seal it up, poke a hole in the top, take it back up to the other kids. And the first thing I do is I would just have the frogs, right? So I would just have them with me and be like, oh, these are fun. I'm the frog kid. Like I had tons of frogs. And then people at first would be like, "Ah, oh, that's dumb, whatever. Like, oh, that's cool. You caught frogs. But then people started getting into it. And they started being like, can I have one? Can I get one? Where can I get one? I'm like, well, you can go catch them down there. And they're like, oh, it's muddy. We're not supposed to go down there and all those things. And I'd be like, or you can just like buy it for me. So I'd charge like $5 because all these kids come to camp with money from their parents like like I did. And I just charged them like, I it's weird how you understand things when you're young. But I knew that because it wasn't their money, they didn't care how much I charged them. So I charged them like 5 $5 for a frog, $10 for a frog. It would change, I guess. I would, I would make up weird size rules like if oh. it was a big one and I would just, yeah. Um, and so, but then what would happen is I started selling them too early in the camp week. So their frogs would either escape or die or whatever because um, they're not getting fed and like sealed in a water bottle or they're just running around in a cabin. And so people come back and be like, my frog's dead and my frog ran off. And I'd be like, "Well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you your money back, but you can buy another frog for half price." Yeah. So I would sell him a second frog for half off. Um, and I did that for all of camp, and I came back with almost a hundred dollars and just bought a ton of Legos. So
0: yeah, it's so good. I love it. I was mortified when I picked him up off the bus and he had a pot bottle with his own pet frogs in his pillowcase. I was, oh my goodness! But lots of cash, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Interesting. So Harrison's always have a, had an entrepreneurial spirit. And when COVID came around, like everyone else, you were bored at home, sitting without a lot to do. And your mind was going, you've always been, I mean, when you were little, you would take an iPad and make videos and things like you're very creative anyway. So you started writing and that has led to the, being the author of many books, one of which you just published last week. So yeah, watch it burn. burn. And um, we're going to put the link for it. It's on Amazon. We're going to put the link in the show notes so you guys can go out and get his novel. Um, So tell us about writing. Like when you first started writing, did you know that you wanted to publish? Did you just write for fun? Like how is this?
1: So I, I started writing, I wrote the first chapter of my first book in April of 2020. Um, we were out at the farm where I, uh, got the relationship with those frogs way back when. And I remember being out there doing my school, but it was like online school and it was like half days and I had plenty of extra time on my hands. And I, uh, I've always, like she said, I've always had the creative, um, I don't know if it's the creative gene or what it is. And I've, Unlike most people who have the creative gene, unless I'm mistaken, I always had trouble figuring out how to express it. So um, when I was really young, I really liked drawing, draw a lot. I draw different things. I draw in church, draw, you know, in school, all the things. Um, and then as I grew up a little, I wasn't ever very good at it, though. Um, and then as I grew up a little bit, I was like, well, I want to make movies. And so then I started like filming little movies on an iPad at like age 12 um making little action movies replicating stories i'd seen on tv or scenes i'd seen on tv i'd put my sister and my friend in there and i'd like be the hero and i'd just beat both of them and yeah it was it was kind of funny and then i stopped doing that just because it wasn't very practical and it took a long time to set up and i didn't have any money to put into it um for effects or anything like that uh and i was very disappointed that the quality was not hollywood level for some yeah. um and so then i got back into drawing and i did that for like another couple of years where i where i draw I, I like drawing like comic book style you know superhero scenes or whatever so i did a lot of drawing but i was just never very good at it and people will challenge me on this say oh i thought they were, they they were fine like you're gonna be fine at anything that you practice at for three hours a day every day like they just weren't good enough to be like satisfactory Um, For me, and so I just kind of slowly got let go. I got more and more into my sports. Um, As I got older, I was probably around the time like 15. Um, And then when 16 rolls around, um, COVID happens a couple months before my uh, 17th birthday. And I'm trapped in my house. Mom took all the restrictions off video games. And uh, so I spent a ton of time playing my Xbox. And I got really bored of Call of Duty really fast uh, because it turns out that (laughs) you can't play that for more than, you know, 12 hours straight without just, you know, despising the game. So, um, once that was done and once I watched through all the movies that I had that I loved, I absolutely love movies. That's a sidebar. Um, everyone should know about me. I have, I think I have over 250 hard, hard copy Blu-rays of different movies, but, um, so i watched through a lot of movies, um, and then I was, I was, I was bored and I didn't really know what to do. And at one point earlier in my childhood, probably around age, we were living in Grand Forks. So I was probably like 12 or 13. Um, I had, it was around the time I was making those really bad movies. Um, I had, a, uh, I had a laptop. Um, I still have that laptop. It's very old. Um, and I would, I tried writing a couple of stories. I wrote like a little short story that was, you know, of course, it wasn't very good. But um, then I gave up on that. And then come to come back around. I'm like, well, maybe I should try writing again. I had just read. Um, what did I just read? I just read a really, really good book. Um, I can't remember which one it was. Um, Oh, The Godfather. I just read The Godfather. That's what it was, because I wanted to watch the movie. So I read the book first. Um, So I just read The Godfather. um, And I was like, all right, let's write a book. And so the first book I wrote, um, of course, I took as like I did with all my other projects, I took as big of a bite as possible and I wrote some crazy dystopian world ending um, save the world type thing that was it was hundred eighty thousand words It was massive. There's a lot of fat on it, really eclectic, hard to hard to get through. I enjoyed writing it though. Um, I had a lot of fun writing it. Uh, it's really, really bad, and it's tucked away on my computer for nobody else to ever read. Um, But I enjoyed writing it so much that I was like, well, I'm going to try another one. And mind you, while this is all happening, as soon as I started typing, the stories just kind of lined up at the door and started coming in. So I have never had a creative problem coming up with narratives. um, And that's a blessing. Most writers really struggle. They're like, I did so much research and I can't figure out what I want to write about. Um, here I am with too many stories to write. Like I throw, I, I was talking to, um, I think I was talking to you actually a few weeks ago about how I throw out probably 10 to 15 stories uh, a week um, that come into my mind. So I'll take them and I'll kind of work around them like a uh, like a clam with a, or an oyster with a pearl, whichever one does the pearls. Um, and I'll work around them and see if there's anything there, see how far I can build it out and see how strong it is. And most of the time, it's not strong enough for me to pursue it. And if it is strong enough, I'll write it down. And if I think it's kind of in the middle, um, I'll write it down on a different list I have so I can compile a book of short stories eventually. Um, But yeah, that's kind of my how my process started. And I just started writing stuff that came into my mind. The second one was a little, because I started realizing I needed to get more localized with my storytelling, which um, for those of you who don't know, that just means um instead of doing like an avengers saving the entire world saving the universe type thing you get more local and you do the story of a family that's in this situation or a great example of local storytelling um, whether you love him or hate him is stephen king um he does almost well per i mean he's the greatest of all time he does perfect local storytelling um you get to know the characters um, and, and you feel like you're involved in the story as opposed to just watching it happen, like, you know, how you'd watch mission impossible happen. Um, uh, and you feel like you're actually there like in, um, Casablanca or the Godfather or Goodfellas or something like that. Um, you feel like you're actually there and involved in the story. And so I started slowly narrowing that down. It took me six, six books that kind of, or five books to figure that out on the sixth one. I really did it well. And then, uh, or sorry, on the fifth one, I really did it well. And on the sixth one, um, uh, I, I think I did it my best so far, and that's Watch It Burn. And so I decided, all right, well, I need to publish this because if I don't, I'll never publish something because I will want it to be perfect and it'll never be perfect and I'll keep editing it, changing stuff. And, and uh, so I finally got it published. Um, it's out on Amazon now. If you look up Watch It Burn, Harrison Stockland, or Watch It Burn book, it should be the first thing that pops up. Um, and yeah, very exciting, very exciting. And since then, I've written one other story um, that I won't be publishing quite yet. Uh, it'll come out maybe in a few years. I need to revisit it. I think it's a great story. But I think I, uh, I was talking to Kim, who is um, sort of my biggest fan. Um, I've known her since I was young. Um, And she and we kind of talked about that because I let her read everything I write. And uh, she she agreed with me when I said, I think I need to mature a little bit before I finish that one, because it's pretty it's pretty uh, personal to the human experience. And so I want to make sure I get all that right. And I think at 19, I don't have the life experience to finish that, um, even though I got the good bones. And then right now I'm working on another crime thriller. So, Okay. yeah,
0: so so tell me why you decided to assume the risk with this project, because you knew that you were going to have to invest a lot of time and a lot of money and it could flop. Like no one could buy it, except, you know, dad and I would buy a copy for sure, but uh, you know, or it could go fairly well, or it could do really, really well, but there's a, a pretty big risk to a project like this. So why do you think you decide, how did you process or work through deciding to take that risk on?
1: Right. And, and yeah, and keep in mind, this, uh, this project costs a lot of money out of pocket, a lot of cash out of pocket. I'm 19 years old. I'm also trying to build a real estate business. So there's a lot of moving pieces here. Um, And I guess what it ended up coming down to was something that I, and I didn't get this from anybody, I made this up on my own. So I'm kind of proud of it. Um, But whether whether it's good or not, I'm confident in my work. So I, whether my story is as good as I think it is or as compelling as I think it is or as um, gripping as I think it is or not, I'm confident in it. And if my confidence is correct, then I am in a healthy spot with this choice. Um, and what that kind of, you know, to expand on that, uh, the the literary industry... Uh, is made up of a lot of literary agents and publishing houses and they have like a they, they marry and they buy rights from authors for uh, for a check uh that's get distributed over a couple of years could be between 100 200 $400,000 and then once they own your rights they can change your title they can change your characters they can change your stories they can change your cover like you don't have any it, it's their story like you don't own it anymore it's like it's like if someone bought your car and they'll pay you for it over 2 years um and they want to change the paint color and change the interior and you're like but that's my favorite car and they're like we don't care it's ours now like so it, it's kind of how it how it happens and that just honestly that disgusts me um being a creative writer like that, that just disgusts me and my characters are their way for a certain reason. um, First of all, second of all, I think I have a pretty good eye for cover art and I know what I want on there. Um, And, and third, you can't change my story. My story is my story for a reason. um, And you're not going to change it just because you think it'll sell more copies. Uh, One of the most famous movies of all time, Pulp Fiction, got shot down by three studios, because they all wanted to change um, what it was about, what it represented. There's some really weird, crazy, nasty stuff in it that they wanted to cut out. And it turns out that's kind of the stuff that made it so popular. Um, and I'm not saying everybody should go out and write weird, nasty stuff. I certainly don't do that. Um, but ju- it just goes to show that Quentin, because Quentin Tarantino didn't give up on his own project, he's now worth $300 million and he lives in Beverly Hills. So, that kind of that that kind of story of being confident in your work, I think, is very important. And the second the second thing that helped me um, do this on my own and make the decision to go for it and just to just to reach out there and see what I could bring back is the fact that I am a motivated creative, which um, means that I do have the creative gene, um, but I also have a lot of motivation, and I'm very busy and very business-minded, and you don't find that in a lot of creatives, which is not to knock on creatives, because I understand a lot of processes work like that. A lot of processes do require you to roll out of bed at 10 a.m. and and um, you know lounge around, watch some cartoons, think of an idea, write it down. Um, a, a lot of processes are like that. A lot of really, really good, legendary people work like that, and that's just how they work. They also don't own their stories and they don't own their products. And I don't know if they care. If they don't care, then it doesn't matter. But I care. Um, And I wasn't going to let that happen to me. And um, because I know, you know, down the line, there's going to be interest in my stories. It's not going to be today. It's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be in a year. But down the line, someone is going to look at it and go, huh, I wonder if I can add that or if I can option it in Hollywood. And and then I receive 100% of the benefit for that. Um, which I think is well-deserved because it's my product. Um, And so uh, having that kind of motivation helps me stay focused. It helps me follow through, um, which are two of the most important things you can do, because like I said, I'm building, building a real estate business on the other side of this. And I also work another job to pay my bills. My businesses fund themselves and I work a job to pay my bills. So uh, yeah, I, my schedule my daily schedule is get up at 4am work from five to three, uh, four days a week, and then the rest of my free time is spent on real estate and writing. and uh, I don't watch TV, I don't play video games, I, I don't go to parties. I don't live the normal life of a 19-year-old. Um, and this goes back to what Dave Ramsey always says, is live like no one else so that one day you'll be living like no one else. And that's kind of my goal. Um, I'm fine with it. I'm happy this way. Sometimes I get really worn out and then I just take a day off because I can. <laughs> so yeah. so um, it's, it's, uh, it's very healthy. And the situation I have at my, my other employment that I clock into four days a week is very flexible. It's the perfect situation. Um, I'm very thankful for it. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I, how I made my decision to just go for it.
0: Yeah, that's so good. So I think anyone listening, you know, for the most part, if you own a small business, you have a creative bone or two or three or four in you, um, you know, those of you that are in retail or smaller retail boutique retail, you're very creative merchandising, buying all of those pieces. And so how can you calculate the risk that you have to take knowing, that you want to own your projects, but yet be smart and wise with setting yourself up for success like Harrison talked about, having having a consistent schedule, still keeping a full-time job, having um, the discipline to do certain things um, like profit first or some of those pieces that we don't always love doing with our numbers, understanding, you know, having the budget, having those pieces so that we can enjoy, more further enjoy the creative side of our business too. So really good. Um, okay. I think that's what we have for today. I just wanted to introduce you to Harrison. I wanted you to hear a little bit of the background on what it feels like to grow up in, um, an entrepreneurial home. And I wanted to share, um, his exciting news about his book. So watch it burn is a crime thriller. Is that how you classify it? Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a crime thriller. Uh, it's pretty gritty. It's pretty intense. It's not, uh, it's not Matlock. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, if you if you've ever seen, um, I like to compare it to movies because I see everything visually, so it's a very visual book. Um, the violence is graphic. Um, the language is gratuitous. So uh, if you've ever seen Scarface or Goodfellas, it's it's comparable in style to that. Um, I had someone the other day ask me what my association was to the 1980s because that's when it's set, set in the 1980s. And I was born in 2003, and so I replied really quickly with uh, Martin Scorsese, that's my connection to the 1980s, and he's the director of all sorts of gangster films um, and stuff out of that time frame, so yeah, it's a a crime thriller, if you're interested in that, it's got a great plot twist, it's got a great story, it has compelling characters, Um, and I think you'll enjoy it whether or not you enjoy the genre, but that's just me.
0: Yeah, I like the genre, I asked Harrison to change a couple things for me, he said no, so <laughs> it is his book and he can write his story. But if you are interested at all in reading, if you're a reader, if you love something, um, a fun novel, exciting exciting plot twist, it would be a good one to catch. So um, it's on Amazon, watch it burn, Harrison Stockman. We'll put the link in the show notes as well. Thanks for coming on and sharing with all of my listeners today.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in. I know this is a little bit different. We did not really talk about numbers, although I snuck them in there at the the end. Just one little plug to to follow Profit First and get your numbers right. Um, But otherwise, it was just a conversation today. I hope that this helped encourage each of you that do, you know, each one of you that do have young children at home, or you're starting a family, or maybe you have adult children, or maybe you have, you know, relationships that sometimes you feel Overwhelmed with the idea of running a business and run, you know, setting up for success in your relationships, that it does integrate together, and that talking through who you are and what your story is with those that love you most is only ever a good thing. So, um, hopefully, this was entertaining, just a little bit different today. Um, Head on over to SierraStockland.com if you are interested in learning more about helping um, me. About me helping you with your profitability. I would love to do that. Um, we just revamped the website. So it's really easy to follow, maneuver. I have lots of freebies over there for you. Um, and I would love to have you reach out to me. So head on over to SierraStockland.com. Otherwise, have a great rest of your day. And I, I have one more keep- thing to oh, add.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have one more thing to add. Um, she is also my business coach and not by force. Um, I pay for it. We had a consulting call. Uh, we meet weekly, so um, it's it's a whole thing. I, I pay for her coaching as well, so it's uh, yeah. But
0: I did not, not tell her to plug that. That is, and actually, really interesting. Going back to like not giving our kids allowance, I also don't give them free coaching. I mean, I give them a, a really good discount. Well, I can call
1: her at nine at night, and she answers. So <laughs>
0: that's right. Or text any time of the week yeah. or day. Um, no, but like I always tell you guys, I think everybody, everyone, including myself, we value what we pay for. Yep. And so, um, so we worked that through, but we've done a lot of good things together. Harrison is set up with profit first in his account. So he is set up, unlike me, he has set up right from the beginning. I'm so excited about that. And we, I do get the privilege of helping him with his business. That was my real estate
1: office now. Um, I got, oh, really? I'm getting my broker into it. Yep.
0: That's great. So, Yeah, that's great.
1: Getting everybody on profit first.
0: I love it. All right, everyone have a great rest of your day and I will see you all next week. Bye for now. Bye. Hey friend, thank you so much for tuning in today to the Inventory Genius Podcast. If there's something that you heard today on the podcast episode and you wanna dig deeper into becoming an inventory genius yourself, I wanna invite you to head on over to my website, sierra.stockland.com, where I have multiple ways that you and I can work together on your inventory. I wanna help you with your profit, your cash flow, and your paycheck, because at the end of the day, it's all related to your inventory. So head on over to the website, connect with me, I'll work with you soon. See you then. Hey friend, thank you for tuning into the Inventory Genius Podcast. All right, so around here you heard me talking about different ways that we can work together, and that's either through a mastermind or through a VIP day. I wanted to share with you a little bit more about what a VIP day looks like, and it's actually not just a day. We start together working on your business for an entire day, but then that work continues throughout the year because let's be honest, Sometimes we can get all of the information, the tools, the systems and the processes we need right in front of us, but then actually taking the action and staying accountable to get that action done is where we fall short. So here's what it would look like. You and I would sit down literally in your place of business. I come to you. So whether that be your warehouse, your store, or any place that you own that has inventory, we sit down together, we look at your inventory, we look at your team, we look at your systems and processes. I get to know all about your business. We dig through your financials and we come up with a system and a process to create more profitability and peace of mind in your business. Then after I go home back to my house in Nashville, my office in Nashville, we'll continue that conversation meeting monthly to review our plan of action along with your financials to make sure that you stay on track. This is a very tailored program and it works. I have amazing testimonials that have been sent to me by women that I've met with time and time again as I met with them for a VIP day, put a process and a plan in place and then help them execute it. I wanna be that coach for you. So if this is of interest to you, head on over to my website, com where you can learn more about booking your VIP day. Hey, boutique owner. Are you ready to go from drowning in busy work to dreaming about the future? Simple Strategies Group creates automated marketing systems that work 24 seven, so you do not have to. And you know how important I tell you it is to have automated, simplified systems. And that's why you need to get a hold of Liz. Liz Whitehead is a certified Clavio Master Silver Partner, as well as a certified Postscript Partner. She knows her stuff. She works with e-commerce product-based businesses to implement email and text marketing strategies that build trust and nurture your customer relationships. She wants to do this for you so that you can start to focus on the front lines of your boutique business. So visit simplestrategiesgroup.com for more info. That's simplestrategiesgroup.com.